If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This Friday saw the release of new film Operation Mincemeat. Directed by John Madden, it uncovers a secret World War II mission to misdirect German forces. The film's inspired by Ben McIntyre's 2010 book of the same name. And to mark its release, Emily Briffitt spoke to Ben about the audacious ideas behind the plot and why we're still so fascinated by historical spy stories. Hello to you, Ben. It's lovely to be talking to you here today. Oh, thank you. It's a delight to be here. Wonderful. Today, we're going to be talking about the new film Operation Mincemeat, which is based on your book of the same name and also on real historical events. It follows a major deception plan during the Second World War. So to start us off, can you set the scene for us? With pleasure. This Operation Mitzmeet was probably the most important deception operation, military deception operation ever carried out. That sounds like a very extravagant claim, but it is true. It is certainly the oddest 
I mean, it is a very, very strange and wonderful and bizarre story. It involves a group of what Churchill called corkscrew thinkers. These were amateur intelligence officers. They weren't professionals. They weren't James Bond types. They were they were a whole mixture of sort of strange people who were gathered into intelligence during the war. And uh, there was a, there was a, what sounds like a very simple, but was actually a very difficult challenge facing them in 1943, which was to everybody knew that the key sort of nodal point in the Mediterranean was Sicily. And and the massed armies in North Africa after the successful North African campaign, everybody knew they were going to attack southern Europe. And the obvious place to attack was Sicily, because Sicily governs the the central part of the, the Mediterranean. So from the point of view of intelligence, what they had to try to do was to convince Hitler that instead of attacking Sicily, this vast armada was headed elsewhere, namely Greece. And this was a hugely elaborate deception operation. It involved all sorts of different bits and pieces. But at its heart lay Operation Mincemeat, which was dreamed up by two characters by the unimprovable names of Montague and Chumley. Uh, One was a barrister in real life. The other was was a sort of six foot four RAF officer who couldn't fly a plane, um, a sort of a flightless bird. And the two of them cooked up what sounds like and, and was really a slightly mad plot, which was that they would get a dead body, they would equip that dead body with a completely new personality and a uniform and a backstory, and then they would ship it somewhere with false papers where the Germans would find it. Now, that's a very simple roundup of what the story was, but uh, that's the essence of Operation Mincemeat. So where exactly did the idea for this plan come from? Well, this is one of the glories of this story and, and one of the wonders of, of John Madden's wonderful film. It, it comes from the mind of novelists. This whole plot was dreamed up either by people who already were novelists or who wanted to be novelists. And so originally the idea came from, and this is one of the discoveries I made when researching this, it, the original idea came from none other than Ian Fleming, the who was then working in naval intelligence. He was the assistant to the head of naval intelligence, John Godfrey, who would eventually become the model for M in the James Bond stories. And Fleming was his assistant, and he was tasked with drawing up ideas to bamboozle the enemy. That was the plan at the beginning of the war. And he derived his ideas from another novelist. I mean, bear in mind that Fleming at this point had not yet written any novels, but he was an avid reader and consumer of novels. And there was one in particular called The Milliner's Hat Mystery, not a a novel I think that anyone reads these days, written by Basil Thompson, again, a totally forgotten novelist, really, which is about a false identity. And, And so Fleming got that idea planted it in something called the Trout Memo, believe it or not, which was a kind of blueprint of sort of deception operations. From there, it was picked up by Montague and Chumley, who then set about framing this operation as if it was a novel. I mean, that sounds bizarre, and it was, but they decided their main character would be this dead body, and they would create for him. They gave him a new name. They called him uh, Major William Martin of the Royal Marines. And they would give him a completely different story. Not just, you know, uh, a name and a, and, a, and a rank and a serial number, but a, a, a father, a, a backstory, a nicotine habit, a kite flying habit. Uh, and eventually, at the core of the story, was a sort of romantic story. They did plant love letters in his wallet. It's called wallet litter in, in, in intelligence jargon all of which was going to give the impression that this was a real person 
carrying real documents in order to plant a massive lie at the heart of the Third Reich. Throughout the film, you really follow along the lines of building the Bill and Pam story, making him as real as you or I, that kind of thing. Can you tell us more about how they went about making him real? Well, they began to inhabit, and this is, I think, something that happens when you write novels or indeed when you write any kind of book. You, be- I felt it myself when writing Operation Midsmeet. You begin to inhabit the characters you're, you're creating and you're living with to the extent that the main protagonists began to write to each other in character. So they would take it in turns to to be William Martin, to be Pam the lover. And then it began to tip over into something more real. So you've got this fascinating interplay between a fantasy that they're creating and, and a kind of real romantic element that begins to emerge at the heart of the film. So there's a wonderful line where, where Colin Firth, who plays Ewan Montague, um, the sort of main character, where he says, you know, something is either real or it is what we want to be real. And that is true both of the great deception that they're launching and of the emotional and romantic situation. I don't want to give too much away that they that they then find themselves in. But it is absolutely fascinating. I think there's also another wonderful moment in the film because I, I'm not exaggerating. Almost everybody involved in this story was a novelist or wanted to be or was sort of involved in that imaginary world. And there's a wonderful moment when um, when uh, uh, Matthew McFadden playing Charles Chumley leans across to another character and says, keep your voice down, they're all round us. And the other character says, what, Germans? And he says, no, writers. I mean, and and, and it was true. So this, in a way... One of the reasons why I loved writing this story is it's a different kind of war, this. It's not the war of guns and bombs and bullets, although obviously that is, the battlefield brackets this story. And nor is it a story of sort of the corridors of power, those historical stories that we're all familiar with, you know, that is about great men and, and diplomacy. This is a secret sort of war. This is a hidden sort of war. And it's a war that none of the protagonists really thought would ever be told. And so it's the war of the imagination, if you like. And it's a way of, I think, exploring... The fact, and it is a fact, and alas, it is all too evident today that that you know wars are not necessarily fought by just simply by muscle and and by explosives. They're fought by disinformation, by lying, by falsehoods, by by misrepresenting what is happening on the battlefield, by making the other side think that you're moving one way when you're moving the other, and you know, and, and that is that is a feat of of intellectual. Uh, muscle, if you like. And it's very different from the sort of history of the war that I certainly grew up with, which was very much more sort of cut and dried in a way. So as you've sort of spoken about throughout this, this history is based in secrets and deceptions. And you mentioned Ian Fleming, the references to M in the film. There's also references to the 39 Steps and Confessions of a Nazi Spy. What do you think intrigues people about historical spy stories? Uh, well, I think there is a sort of eternal fascination with the double life. I think we are all interested in the idea of appearing to be something on the outside and being someone completely different on the inside. So I think there is that that, that fascination with imagining ourselves into another world. And, and even, the you know, there is a reason why spying attracts, particularly, I think, a British kind of sensibility. It's, you know, there is a huge attraction to thinking, you think I'm just the next person on the, on the 97 bus, but actually I'm a secret agent. You know, so that, that goes very deep. But I think there is also, I mean, it's very interesting you mentioned Buchan and, and, and so on, and, and because there is clearly, well, there is to me, I think, a, a link between 
the great novelists of the 20th century and spying. It is it is no accident, I think, that the great some of the greatest writers in English prose ever were spies. Somerset Maugham, John Buchan was involved in intelligence, uh, Graham Greene, uh, John le Carre, Ian Fleming. Uh, these were all people who had lived in the secret world. And, and spying in some ways is not so different from writing a novel. Because what you're trying to do is to create an artificial reality. And if you can lure other people into it, if you can persuade them that black is white and white is black and that there's an emotional truth going on when there isn't, you'll be a very good novelist and you also might make a very good spy. Uh, I just think they are not entirely separate. I think it's quite interesting that the, the first thing that Stella Rimington did when she stepped down as the first woman head of MI5 was to start writing novels, you know, and she still is. You know, so there is there is something about the exercise of the imagination in espionage that is hugely powerful and, and much misunderstood, I think. Personally, what appealed to you about this story as an author? Why do you think it works well on screen? Well, what appealed to me is, in a funny way, I think the, the, my answer to that is the same answer, really, which is the characters. The characters in this story are so odd and so interesting and so unlikely and their combination seems so bizarre that it was sort of, uh, in a way, the book... I don't want to sound falsely modest, but it sort of writes itself because because these characters are so vivid. They're so clearly their own people. And I think that helps, that that greatly helps on screen. That if you've got these people who who you can immediately identify as being a particular sort of character, then then I think you're halfway there. But in a way, that is also a function of the nature of the files that I was working from. Um the book would not have been possible to write without the declassification of the mincemeat files in 1996. Long time ago now, but it was a huge sea change in in British attitudes towards official secrecy. There was a time when, immediately before that, when reporting the colour of the carpets in MI5 was illegal. Suddenly, almost overnight, you had this vast cornucopia of information. And I just got really lucky, actually. I mean, mean, I'm not, you know, I just happened to be standing in the right place at the right time when this stuff started pouring out of the National Archives. And those files are extraordinary. For any historians out there, I mean, go and have a look at them because they are completely different, the MI5 files, from any kind of government file. Because they're written by and for people who never expected them to be made public. They're not meant to be read by you and I. And so they have a sort of patina of truth that is quite unlike normal government files. Most government files are basically there to try and make the writer look good. And they know perfectly well that they're going to be under public scrutiny at some point. So it's all carefully framed and organised. That's not true of the MI5 files. And it's definitely not true of the Mincemeat files, because when it starts going wrong in Operation Mincemeat, and boy, does it go wrong... In the margins, they are writing, we are going to hell in a handcuff. This is a disaster. You've made a total cock up of this. You know, we need to start, you know. So you get the personalities. I suppose that's my long way of saying these files reveal character and personality and individuality in a way that is, well, in my experience of researching, unique. People who write their memoirs are a different story. People who write letters home are a different story. People who write sort of official 
documents, secret official documents in the moment, that provides you with a real, a real insight into what they really are. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, if you, if you hear the love letter that they planted, it's a wonderful piece of writing. But it does, to an English ear, to a British ear, I would say, it does sound like it's made up. It sounds like the kind of thing you might put in a romantic novel. And, and when challenged with this, Montague's response was, well, we're not trying to convince British people. We're trying to convince German people who may only have read bad English novels. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Montague and Chumley are leading figures in this operation, but how much can we actually know about the real them and the real 20 committee? Well, the wonderful thing is, as I say, from these files, you do get a sense of their of their personalities. Um, they both wrote letters. Montague wrote a, a memoir, which was itself partly deceptive, which I rather like. I mean, he, you know, his account of this this story, the man who never was, has a deception buried deep in its heart. I mean, it it, it conceals the one thing that everybody wanted to know, which is who was this man. One of the lovely things about doing this story when I did it was that it was still then on. The, the last living tip of memory. There were people around who had been in Room 13 planning this, including Jean Leslie, um, the, the, the character played by Kelly MacDonald, who I got to know really very well in her 80s. Um, and so if you've got the documentary material on one side and you've got 
letters and diaries and postcards and poems and photographs amassed. And families are brilliant at this. I mean, it's a, it was an extraordinarily literate war, the Second World War. Everybody wrote things down. And, and one of the lovely things about working in this area is that, that families keep stuff. I mean, it, you'd be amazed how often I start on a story thinking, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to find very much here. And you start knocking on a door. It's, I suppose it's the journalistic element of my, of my work is that, you know, you knock on the door and you find they say, oh, yes, actually, do you know what? I think we've got a box of papers. You know, and those are, those are gold dust. Those are absolute catnip to a historian. And then if you also have living witnesses, people who can tell you what it smelled like in the room on a Monday morning and how many cigarettes they smoked before midnight, you can tell a true story in a way that feels, well, I suppose in a way like a novel, except that it, every word of it, I hope, is true. Were there any problems posed to you in your research at all? In terms of official secrecy, no. I, 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 I didn't get the, the knock on the door saying, you know, can, can you please not reveal all this? Um, I, I've had that with other, with other books, but not, not with this one, no. The, the, the real problem, in a funny way, it was, it was a sort of embarrassment of riches, this story. That, the, the problem I faced was more that I had too much material than too little. And this is, I mean, John is genius and he's he's brilliantly threaded his way to create a sort of emotional reality without simplifying what is actually a very complicated story. I mean there are so many layers to mincemeat and there are so many moments when it goes back and forth and the different characters interact which I find absolutely fascinating to write as a book. You couldn't put that on screen because I mean nobody would be able to follow it and let alone in in in, in under 2 hours, you know. I mean it would be it would be impossible. So my problem was in a way marshalling this this huge this really dense and fascinating amount of material in a way that that the narrative works. So I didn't face other problems. I, I, there was no attempt to sort of to suppress it. Although interestingly, of course, the history of mincemeat was one of suppression. I mean, after the war, the intelligence services did not want this story to be told. Um, well, for obvious reasons in a way, which was that it was illegal. You know, they had they had stolen a body. You know, they had simply assumed that no one would claim the body of Glyndor Michael and they could get away with it. They were scuppered by the fact that, and again, here the novel comes in, Duff Cooper uh, got wind of the story because he heard Winston Churchill telling it after dinner all the time. And so he then wrote a novel called Operation Heartbreak, which was a kind of thinly veiled version of the story, very romanticised. And as a result of that, Ewan Montague said, well, if he can do the novel... I'm going to do the non-fiction version. So, and what's more, Montague had also appropriated all the files uh, and kept them under his bed. And so, so you have this kind of interplay between novels and, uh, but but the officially, including Charles Chumley. I mean, Charles Chumley was was strongly opposed to this story ever being told. He did not want it to be told, and that's been one of the touching things actually is to is to get to know his family um, and for them, I think, to see their their father and grandfather get the credit for something that he himself never claimed. And there's something rather noble about that, I think. He, he was of that generation, that Bletchley Park generation, that felt that a secret was a secret. Regardless of whether somebody released you from that secret, it was still a secret. And um, I think, I, I hope in a way we've given Chumley his, his, his just desserts now. Throughout the film... Montague and Chumley also see a lot of opposition and scepticism from Admiral John Godfrey. How much resistance was actually faced at the time? 
Oh, there was considerable resistance to this plot. I don't think the morality at the time was what worried the top brass. The top brass were genuinely fearful, and, and they had a point that if this operation was the absolute centrepiece of the whole deception operation and it went wrong, then it would be clear that that instead of going to Greece, they were definitely coming to Sicily at which point Sicily would be reinforced, and at which point, when the troops landed there, there would be a bloodbath. So a, a number of the top brass pointed out that this, was, this wasn't just a tactical deception, this was a strategic deception. And so the stakes involved were that much higher. And I think some of them thought, it's mad. It's a mad idea. There are too many moving parts in this story that, you know, it's involving love letters and letters from the bank manager and, you know, the receipt for a diamond ring. And and I think they thought, particularly Godfrey, who was a dry, tough old stick. I mean, he he was very like M in the in, in the James Bond stories, and he was full of sort of cynicism and and but also highly intelligent. And I think he was he was central to the group that was saying, you have got carried away with your own creation here. You've gone over the top. And in some ways, he was right. I mean, they had they had become so caught up in their story. I mean, if you if you hear the love letter that they planted, it's a wonderful piece of writing. But it does, to an English ear, to a British ear, I would say, it does sound like it's made up. It sounds like the kind of thing you might put in a romantic novel. And and when challenged with this, Montague's response was, well, we're not trying to convince British people. We're trying to convince German people who may only have read bad English novels. And therefore, it, if it's a bit over the top, that's the point, is we're trying to create a kind of fantasy here. So I just think that interplay is, is, is so fascinating. But no, it came very close to being, to being scuppered completely. And without Churchill's personal support for it, another novelist, by the way, um, without Churchill's support for, for this story, which he absolutely loved. I mean, don't forget that Churchill was a huge uh, fan of The Cloak and the Dagger. I mean, he, there's nothing he liked better than a spy story. Um, and he, 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 too, became very caught up in this tale. And without his personal approval, I think it's very unlikely that Operation Mincemeat would have been launched. And in fact, there is a memo written um, uh, by a man called Bevan, who was head of what was called the London Controlling Section, which was the key sort of deception organ at the time, describing a meeting with Churchill, um, where Churchill, where he said to Churchill, you know, what, what do we do if this doesn't work? What do we do if it goes wrong? And Churchill simply said, well, and I will not attempt to do my Churchill accent, uh, Churchill said, you know, we will just have to put him in again for another swim, uh, which sort of completely misunderstood the point of the story, really. But Churchill was very, very keen on it. And, and that, you know, he, he, he was personally invested in it because he had to be. It was really... This was the throw of the dice that had to work because there wasn't going to be a second invasion of, of Fortress Europe. They had one shot at it. And without Sicily, it was going to be virtually impossible. What made this plan so difficult to achieve? Yes, I think they had to make it, in a way, just unbelievable enough to be believable. That sounds like a sort of contradiction in terms, but it had to be sufficiently heightened and sufficiently dramatic that it would convince uh, the other side, but without giving away any hostages to fortune. But but there were 
they made mistakes. I mean, that's one of the things it, it, with something as complicated as this. I mean, really, when you're planting a lie, you want to tell one lie and you want to you want to land it and you want to back it up. Whereas, in fact, what they did, and, and this is often a giveaway with people who, who, who try to lie, is that they told too many lies. There were all lots of little lies were kind of adding up to one big lie. And that's a very difficult thing to maintain. You have to be utterly brilliant at lying in order to remember all your earlier lies. I mean, and very few people can do it. Kim Philby was one who could, for example. So he was, he was brilliant at remembering the lies that he told in the past. So there were mistakes made in Operation Mincemeat that made it a real hostage to fortune, including some some very clear ones. I mean, they took they took advice, for example, from a very senior forensic pathologist called Sir Bernard Spilsbury. Um, everybody in this story, by the way, has names like Spilsbury and Montague and Chumley. I don't know where all these people went. Perhaps they didn't breed after the war, but but really, where did they, where did they go? Um, so Spilsbury said to them when they asked him, they said, you know, we've got this 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 dead person and he's died of rat poison. And Spilsbury said, oh, that's absolutely fine. You can certainly use him for this operation because in order to identify that he died of rat poison, there would have to be a coroner as good as me in Spain. And there aren't any. That was that was his view. And, and he was wrong. Not only was he, well, he was wrong in all sorts of different ways. But first of all, actually, phosphorescent rat poison, you would, a, a proper forensic pathologist would have been able uh, to identify that. And by sheer bad luck, the body washed up in a place where the local coroner wasn't some sort of hick, um, but was actually an expert in drownings. So, so they had a real problem. And it sounds comic in a way. And there is a comic element to all of this, which we, we might discuss. But, but you know, uh, it just came so close to the whole thing to unravelling. And the stakes were massively high. You know, instead of kind of saving lives, they could be sending hundreds of thousands of people to their death. They knew that. Can you tell us a little bit more about this side of comedy? Well, it's 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 an important element of the film because this is the, what this film achieves amazingly. I think is that it's not just an adventure story and a spy story and a romance and a, and a, and so on, but it's also it has high comic elements to it, and and that is because the in the real story that is also true. These characters were fully aware of the absurdity of what they were doing, and. The reality is they were also having fun. I mean, I know that sounds odd in the middle of a terrible, ghastly war, but in some circumstances and in some places, war is enjoyable. And um, there's a wonderful line in the film where where Colin Firth, who plays um, Ewan Montague, says, we are going to play a humiliating trick on Hitler. And that is exactly how they approached it. So the comedy elements of it, I mean, you've got a dead body in the middle of this story. That's already black humour waiting for you right there, you know. And and so, again, there's a, there's a sort of, I, I think it's the funniest moment in the film, really, when they are trying to photograph the face of the dead body in order to use it on an identity card. And, of course, you can't f- photograph a dead body body in any way that looks other than dead and so there's this terrible moment when they think oh my god we're not going to be able to do this because we simply don't have the right face here you know the one we've got is the one real one is is evidently no longer living so there's there's great comedy to be had in all of that but it is absolutely true to the story except that what begins as a kind of caper if you like a kind of 
um, a, a kind of a jokey game becomes blacker and blacker and darker and darker as it becomes clearer and clearer. Firstly, that the operation appears to be working, and second, that it doesn't. And and they've so so the reality of the strain and the stress. What the film does wonderfully, I think, is to juxtapose these moments of real dark tension with moments of joy. There, are, There is real joy in this film because, of course, we're 1943 in London. The war is in, in its middle period. The bombs are no longer falling. And yet people are trying to live ordinary lives, normal lives. And so you go from this sort of grim blackout scene of, of, of you can't see anything, people are scurrying through the dark, and a door opens and suddenly you're in a jazz club or suddenly you're in a, the gargoyle club where they where they hatched most of the plot. And that, again, is true to life, I think. It's another way of looking at the war, which we, again, we associate with a certain sort of sort of black and white imagery, whereas actually the war is a complicated thing. It's not just about goodies and baddies and heroes and villains and, you know, a, a sort of moral crusade. Uh, and it's definitely not just about guns and bombs and bullets. It's also about imagination and and comedy and absurdity and lateral thinking and little flashes of light in the darkness. That was Ben McIntyre historian and author of Operation Mincemeat, the true spy story that changed the course of World War II. The new film Operation Mincemeat was released in UK cinemas last Friday, April the 15th. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.